Kia ora, welcome to The House, I'm Johnny Blades. This week has been Budget Week. Documents, papers, numbers, cheese rolls. Budget Day is a bonanza of both action and silence at Parliament. Here's Phil Smith. I imagine by this point you are thoroughly sick of hearing about the budget, so let me reassure you that we will avoid mentioning any amounts of money planned for anything. Here on the House, we try as much as possible to ignore all the politics and instead focus on the policies, the bills, the process and the underlying democracy of it all. But sometimes those things are so thickly intermingled with politics, it's all but impossible. So let's put to one side all the budget plans that Grant Robertson outlined and tell you about what happened next. The Honourable Grant Robertson. I move that the appropriation 2023-24 estimates bill be now read a second time. The budget speech from the Minister of Finance is just the beginning of a very long debate that will take weeks. But the initial stanzas are all long speeches from party leaders. Each of the party leaders had 20 minutes to respond. First up was Christopher Luxon. But here's the thing. His, and the speeches from the other party leaders, were all pre-written, pretty much blind. Of the party leaders, only the Prime Minister was fully informed. The party leaders traditionally get a courtesy copy of the documents an hour early, but that's not really enough time to write a good rebuttal, or even to reach a well-reasoned opinion, especially if you consider the enormous scope of any budget. And so, as a result, a few things happen. The first is that the speeches in response to the budget, necessarily, talk about almost anything except the details of the actual budget. They have blown the budget. Grant Robertson spent billions of dollars. He's blown out the books. We've got massive deficits. We've got years of deficits ahead of us based off this. He's blown out the credit card and debt is spiralling up to $95 billion. That was Christopher Luxon, who, as the leader who got to respond first, had the least time to prepare a specific response. After him, the Prime Minister also got 20 minutes. He has a different job entirely and does get to prepare specifically. But you can imagine that his opening line was possibly just also sitting ready and waiting to go. Mr Speaker, Budget Day is a day for details, a day for plans, a day for vision. We just heard none of those things from the Leader of the Opposition. If an opposition party wants to go whole hog, the budget debate is an opportunity to get very specific and present the bones of an alternative budget. And smaller parties often do. In this country, we have taken defence for granted for far too long. We don't live in Helen Clark's benign strategic environment, and that's why X alternative budget would increase defence expenditure to 2% of GDP so that we can play our part and pull our weight and a fully interoperable ANZAC Defence Force to send a credible message to the rest of the world to back out of the South Pacific. David Seymour had even brought along a printed summary with a nice coloured cover. MPs do love a prop to wave around. But regardless of the cover, no one really has the resources to be very specific. The actual budget is hundreds and hundreds of pages of detailed spending plans, and behind that, thousands of pages of departmental and ministry statements of intent and so on. So it can be safer to just focus on the generalities. But when those speeches are written in anticipation, a few spaces are usually left to allow the party leaders to pop in some relevant detail later on, once they know what the details actually are. And the implication of all of that is that we actually have Treasury, page one of the executive summary of the budget, saying interest rates are going to remain higher for longer. 
which if you imagine it, probably means there's a first draft that says something like, I deplore that the government intends to dot 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 details to be added later. Hopefully one day a soon-to-be unemployed speechwriter will forget to update that bit and an unfortunate party leader will just read the whole thing out. As odd as it seems, there is a huge advantage to not being in the government during a budget debate. If you don't have to get into the weeds of the spending details and balancing things, you might as well go large. For the Greens, Manaba Davidson. This was the budget that could have reduced the outrageous and immoral level of income and wealth inequality we have in this country. It could have been the budget that confronted climate change with the urgency and the scale that it demands. A budget that made sure everyone in Aotearoa has what they need to have kai on the table, a safe place to call home and live a good life. After nearly two and a half hours of promising and deploring, the leaders all packed up their soapboxes and left the debating chamber to the more junior MPs. And the debate was also shelved for later. Instead, the House gets straight into debating some of the legislation that is related to the budget. Here's Johnny. It's become the norm after the delivery of the budget for the House to go into urgency. This means a longer than usual week for MPs at Parliament. But mercifully for them, or us, this week's legislative load under urgency following the 2023 budget has been quite light. So what went down? Four bills were introduced, including two that passed through all their stages. They both relate to the supply of energy, as the Deputy Leader of the House, Kieran McAnulty, explained in the chamber. The changes that they make are narrow and targeted. The purpose of the Energy Resources Levy Amendment Bill is to ensure that the Crown receives a fair financial return for its fossil gas. It must be passed quickly so as to avoid confusion over the current interpretation of the law, with possible losses of levy revenue to the Crown and the public. The Energy, Fuels, Levies and References Amendment Bill aims to strengthen New Zealand's fuel resilience and economic security. Urgency is being used to ensure that levy funding is available to roll out the fuel resilience policy package as funding certainty is needed to finalise the arrangements for the reserve diesel stock arrangement by the end of 2023 and to administer the minimum stockholding obligation. There were also three first readings done in order for each to be referred to select committee without delay. The first of these was the Taxation Annual Rates for 2023-24 Multinational Tax and Remedial Matters Bill, which also includes changes that were part of the budget package. The Revenue Minister, David Parker, said main features of this bill aimed to improve the fairness of the tax system, including committing New Zealand to a global initiative to ensure multinational companies pay at least 15% tax, and this new tweak to the system. Aligning the trustee and top personal tax rates at 39% will make the tax system fairer. Uh, it will also slightly improve its progressivity. The changes about preventing high-income earners from circumventing the top tax rate. About 78% of trustee income is earned by 5% of all trusts, and that becomes even more concentrated uh, at the very top end of those top 5%. These really are the big trusts of the super wealthy. I had a look at the stats yesterday. The bottom 50% of trusts, by my calculation, on average will pay less than $20 a week extra in tax as a consequence of this measure. But the National MP Simon Watts decried the government for a wasted opportunity, as he put it. The annual rate section of this bill 
does nothing to consider the appropriateness of the thresholds of taxation on Kiwis. It does nothing in order to provide relief to those Kiwis which are dealing with a cost of living crisis. This Labor government's policy has created the cost of living crisis that Kiwis across this country are facing. The Green MP Chloe Schwabrick explained her party supported the bill even though she said it could and should have gone far further to address big distortions in the tax system. Andrew Bailey put it uh, best a while ago uh, in one of the many debates that we've had this term on the state of taxes and the economy and productivity and otherwise where there is, and I quote, such a thing as legitimate tax avoidance. And Mr Speaker, that is the inherent problem. The way that we have set up our economy, our tax and our trust rules such that people can get around the system and those who have the most resources end up paying far less than is fair as well as this bill, the Tax Principles Reporting Bill also had a first reading, legislation that proposes a statutory framework for the reporting of tax information. And finishing up the week, a fifth bill, the Land Transport Road Safety Amendment Bill, which the government says strengthens powers to address unsafe behaviour on New Zealand's roads, had a first reading and referral to a select committee. Now, getting to select committee, that's very much the hope of an MP whose member's bill has just been picked from the ballot. Most proposed member's bills don't get picked and stay languishing among the crumbs of the biscuit tin. But getting picked is just the start of the real nitty-gritty involved in shaping a member's bill into law. So to find out what's involved, I spoke with the MP behind the latest member's bill picked from the ballot, Labour's Angie warren Clark, who began by telling me what her Family Proceedings Dissolution for Family Violence Amendment Bill aims to do. Very simply, it's about uh, people who have been victims of family violence and who have been married or in some form of a relationship to be able to be divorced without waiting those two mandatory years that we wait in this country. So if it's proven family violence, you'll be able to seek or apply for a disillusionment or a divorce without waiting those two years. How did you come to proposed this bill? How, how did it come to you, so to speak? I have worked in this field for a long time and I've met with many, many women over the years who have struggled with remaining married um, in a situation where they themselves are being abused because of that fact. But one um, woman particularly came to me and she told me about the experience of being married her partner had been put in prison for the violence that he perpetrated on her. She was hospitalised. It was horrific uh, violence. She was married to him. He was very clever. He was able to use the system to continue to abuse her. She still lives in fear of him now. But the reality of the things that he was able to do to her using all sorts of technology and banks and all sorts of things. It was two years of terror that she experienced. So she asked me if I could do anything about this and I gave her my word that I would make every effort. So when you put the member's bill on the ballot, have you fleshed it out with lots of legal detail or does that come later? The first thing people need to know is a member's bill, it sits sort of in this grey area. The machinery of government doesn't sit behind this legislation. Basically, you come up with an idea, that idea is progressed, it's, um, we get a bit of help drafting, 
and then at that point it gets put into the ballot. And our um, situation in the Labour Party, our caucus agrees to it, that it can go into the ballot. But at that point, it's sort of a rough diamond, really. It needs consideration, and that's why um, it's always great to bring bills through to the have their first reading and go to select committee. And that's where you really sort of sharpen and shape and the community gets to talk to you about things that perhaps you hadn't thought of or um, concerns. And I know that there will be some in on this bill and um, and I'm I'm looking forward to should we get through the first reading, which I'm pretty hopeful. But where to immediately until it's first reading, do you have to work with legal counsel to flesh that out, to no. expand it? Not really. So the process is, is designed to be a public process that occurs in the select committee process. You know, obviously I'll be preparing for the first reading, etc., and what committee it will sit with. But all of that really happens when we get um, officials appointed. So at that point there will be legal counsel hopefully able to support but also agencies appointed. So, for example, could be the Ministry of Justice appointed in this case. And at that point, it becomes quite a public process. So, you know, everything's live-streamed, all those discussions and the things that are raised. So I'm really hopeful that once we're through that first reading, there'll be some real engagement with the community around the fish hooks as well as the things they like. And certainly looking at the legislation right now, I think... One change that which I will talk about in my first speech is around what the burden of proof needs to be. So, for example, a final protection order or a conviction in a court of law is the proof or evidence of that family violence. It's all part of the hurly-burly of the process. That's Labour MP Angie Warren-Clark. And you've been listening to The House which is produced with funding from Parliament's Office of the Clerk. Kia pai tōra.